Thanks for tuning in to a Sunday service. This week, we'll hear a message from Pastor Andy Bowles. See if you can help me with these statements to see how real they are. And and not just how real they are, if they are real, but how effective these are to you in your life, in your walk in your relationships, in your work, in your home. So these are the statements. Number one, gratitude is an attitude. How many of you guys would say that is a true statement and it's rippled effect through every area of my life? Gratitude is an attitude. The next statement, attitudes are choices. How many of you guys would say attitudes are choices? Gratitude is an attitude, attitudes are choices. Moods are results of feelings that can be changed. How many of you guys believe that moods are results from emotions and those can be changed? All right, so we're pretty much all on the same page, right? Right? So, so, so gratitude is an attitude and attitudes are choices. And then we throw mood in the mix of that. And we say moods are fueled by emotions. And and let me just say this real quick. Emotions is not a bad thing. Uh, We talk about this all the time. Emotions is a part of your created makeup. It is the soul part of you. You're created in the image of God, Father, Father, Son, and Spirit, and you are body, soul, and spirit. And this soul part of you is where you get your social life. It is where you have your passions, your desire, your focus, your drive. But it's also the center of your your emotions. And so God is a God of emotion. The Bible teaches us that there were times in the Old Testament that God laughed and that God cried. We see in the Gospels that Jesus, being a man of sorrows, was a man who wept outside of the tomb of Lazarus. He showed emotion. And I wish that we would have had a little more in the Gospel to reveal the fact of how I believe oftentimes Jesus would be with the disciples and something funny would happen and he would laugh. And there were days to where Jesus bore a burden and he became sad. You remember in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, Jesus is weeping and saying, Father, let this cup pass from me. If it's not your will, I will drink from this cup. And so we know that God is a God of emotion. We were created with emotions. And so our emotions should not necessarily be discounted But I want to say this, that I believe that attitudes are more than emotion. Attitudes are more than emotion. A lot of times, attitudes are circumstantial, right? You can wake up in a bad mood. Don't, just just self-confession, don't confess the issue of a spouse, don't point the finger to somebody that you know. Years ago, we, I raised my kids to hate four things, okay? I raised, raised my kids to hate Satan, sin, Auburn. <laughs> I feel like that's very holy. And Mendenhall, because I was a McGee Trojan, and Mendenhall's our rivals. And I remember one day that Easton woke up in a bad mood. I'm throwing you under the table, Easton. We were just taught this yesterday. Don't use your kids as sermon illustrations. So what <laughs> So just hang on, hang on, I didn't get to it. Some of you guys are from it and all you already offended, okay? <laughs> so, so, 
So Easton, Easton was woke up in a bad mood and, and we were teaching our kids, you know, just different things. And Eli wakes up and he comes in there and tells his mama says, Easton woke up on the wrong side of Mendenhall. <laughs> supposed to be the wrong side of the bed, but that worked for me. <laughs> and, and a mood, we can just wake up in a mood, right? But, but if moods are fueled by emotions, then we can change our emotions. But, but to understand that, that attitudes are a little bit deeper than just an emotion that you feel. It can be circumstantial. It can, it, an attitude, you can develop an attitude over a period of time over a certain thing. I guess kind of like I have Auburn and Mendenhall, right? So an attitude can be developed to where you can be in a good mood, and then something come up, a song on the radio, a word spoken by somebody, a scent that you smell, a memory that you have, a person that you see at Walmart, and you can be just having a great day. And then all of a sudden, your attitude change. And it was something based on a circumstantial situation. But if... But if gratitude is an attitude and attitudes are choices and, and moods are fueled by emotion but can be changed, then what that tells me, if, if we're all in agreement, and maybe some of us this morning, we don't agree. We're like, no, nah, Andy, you're wrong. Tell me after the sermon. Don't tell me during the sermon. And we can get together and we can talk about this, but I think those are factual. It tells me that we can determine within ourselves that we will carry around with us by the decisions that we make momentarily, that we will have the attitude of gratitude. That we can. It's like Greg's already mentioned, it's been mentioned a couple of times this morning, that, that we're going to start this series of messages through the month of November, a heart free from ingratitude, but, but this is not just like October was not just a month that we talk about missions and focus on missions, but this is not just a month. It's, it's the calendar God gave us, and on the calendar, I think we should celebrate calendar things that are healthy and good, but we also should leverage the calendar that God gives us as we're all already thinking about turkey and dressing and family gatherings and moments of gratitude to say that we as Christian people, now the world, this is what the world's gonna do. The world's gonna put gobble to you wobble on the painted turkey on their front porch. And you may have that, and I love it. I'm not saying anything against it. But the world, that's all they're going to do is they're going to watch Dallas football on Thanksgiving morning, which I don't know why anybody would want to watch Dallas football any, any day. But they're going to watch football. They're going to eat turkey. They're going to gather together as family, and they're going to do functions, and they're going to call it Thanksgiving Day. And the world has one tunnel view perspective of gratitude. But I want you to know something, guys. The United States government does not own gratitude. There's no social grouping that can say they have a certain angle on it. There was nobody but God himself who created it, so therefore God owns thanksgiving. He owns gratitude, and what he does with his people is he says, I want you to enjoy the blessing of a grateful heart. You can do that 24-7. You can do that every day of the year. It's not just because some president in the 1800s said, let's just call this the day of thanksgiving. 
But every, if you know your history, that's what happened, by the way. <laughs> but we can have a heart that's free from ingratitude. Because when we have the attitude of gratitude and it is our choice and we are fueling it with the right emotion to make the mood set itself along with gratitude, then the world will see that we are grateful people. I don't know if you've ever met that person who seems to always look for ways to have a bad day. You don't have to be that. <laughs> so we, we want to be people of, of grateful hearts, free from ingratitude. And we're going to look at a passage of scripture in Luke chapter 17. You can go ahead and take your Bibles and begin to open Luke chapter 17, verse 11 through 19. It's a very familiar passage of scripture that you've probably heard, read, preached, heard preached. And I don't know, maybe you preached it, preached it to your kids. But Luke chapter 17, verse 11 through 19 is the story of when Jesus is going through Samaria. Two, two Sundays ago, Philip Watts was here and he was preaching on uh, John chapter 4 and he talked about Samaria. I thought he did a phenomenal job of explaining what was happening there in Samaria. I'll probably touch some of that here in just a little bit as well. But Jesus is traveling through Samaria intentionally, on purpose, and he sees this group of 10 lepers and they're asking him to heal them from a distance, and Jesus heals them. And who knows the rest of the story? Only one came back. Let's, let's read that story real quick. And it came to pass, as he went through Jerusalem, that he passed through the mist, the middle of Samaria, and also Galilee. And we point out Samaria more so because the one that was changed was a Samaritan. Verse 12, and as he entered into a certain village, there he met 10 men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. They called him by name. They recognized his authority and they asked for what only he could give. Verse 14, and when he saw them, he said unto them, go show yourselves unto the priest. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice, I love that part. If you do any underlining, highlighting, circling, exclamation points anywhere in your Bible, if you're that person or if you have side margins that you take notes in your Bible, that ought to be a point right there that you recognize. You see, I think, I think even in the silent attitude of gratitude, it speaks volumes to those who are ungrateful. Those who, who need the example of a grateful heart can, can see that and, and hear that in their heart. And, and, and this, this, they turned back, and with a loud voice, he glorified God. Amen. Maybe it's just because I'm a loud person, and I like that part. Verse 16, and fell down on his face at his feet, at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And the Holy Spirit just inspires Luke, who was saved later, by the way. He was a Gentile, not a Jew. He was not one who was following Jesus. The Holy Spirit inspires him to include, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, were there not 10 cleansed? But where are the nine they are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. So obviously there was a, a mixture inside of these 10 that there were some who were Jews of Galilee and some who were Samaritan, obviously at least one. 
And he says in verse 19, and he said unto him, arise and go your way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. How many sermons can be preached out of those seven, eight verses? I'm telling you, it's, it's so jam-packed and, and, and so amazing. And, and, it, and I'm going to do my best in the next 20 minutes to try, try to give you as much as I can out of that passage of Scripture as we look at this real-life event that took place. I think sometimes we can get carried away with the Bible and we can treat it like a storybook and act as though it was something written about something a long time ago that we're disconnected from. And we have value with it because we can learn lessons about it, but we don't put in perspective that there was real life flesh and blood people who were walking on the earth in that specific geographical location who were dealing with things like we deal with. Now, I'm not saying that anybody here has leprosy or has had leprosy, but how many of you have ever been sick? How many of you have ever missed a car payment? How many of you have ever had um, maybe a night in a place with a key and a lock that you didn't have a key to? I'm talking about jail, y'all. <laughs> yeah, so... You, you know what we're, these people had real life situations, but, but I want to take a step outside of that real life event that took place and give you kind of the backside teaching of the obvious lesson that we're going to learn from this story in just a moment. So what's happening on the backside of this is Jesus is traveling with a crowd of people. More than just 12 hand-selected disciples, they are women who go along with them, who are ministering to their needs. There are others of the crowd who choose to follow Jesus, maybe for a little while and then leave. Remember Jesus, he would say things like, if you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. And they couldn't figure out what he was talking about. Kind of freaked them out a little bit. And they left and stopped following him. And Jesus turned to the twelve and said, you're going to leave me too? And Peter says, who should we go to that has the words of life? The Holy Spirit helped them get that in that moment. But, but there, there's this crowd. But, but here in this passage, Jesus has some specific things that he wants to say to those who have an ear to hear what he has to say. You know, it's, it's a wonderful thing to... Uh, I, I've been a Christian since I was 15. I'm 47 now. I got a birthday at the end of the month. Man, I'm getting old really quick. Um, but, but gave my life to Jesus when I was 15. Started preaching when I was 18 years old. Been preaching the Bible since December 31st, 1994. That was the first time I ever preached the Bible. Taught it some before that, but publicly preaching it. To, to be able to learn some new things from the Bible. I, was, I listened to this passage on my phone several times this morning in preparation and reading through this passage several times in, in preparation for today's message, but heard some things this weekend in a conference that was just like a blaring neon sign to me and was like, oh, it was amazing. The Spirit of God showed up and revealed some deeper truths to me about the character and person of Jesus and how he related with those 12. But he, he spoke in the first part of this chapter almost to the 12, but in particular to those who have an ear to hear. It was said this weekend that Jesus used that repetitive phrase more than he used any other repetitive phrase. I didn't know that. Did y'all know that? How many of y'all knew that? Yeah, how come you didn't tell me that? 
had to go, had to go down the road to hear that. So it's amazing to think that, that Jesus is with multitudes of people. And then he's with small groups of people. But the, the thought is the same. If you have an ear to hear, let him hear. I, I believe that is still waking today to affect us. Some of you will be in this room only to appease a religious conscience about yourself. You've only showed up because that's what you do. You just show up. And you're going you're gonna to hear the, hear the singing and you're going to clap and you're going to be excited and, and you're going to sit and hear a sermon. Can I tell you what Jesus meant when he said, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. It wasn't just to hear, but to have it settle down deep in your heart to where you're mulling over it and you're deciding and at the conclusion, you're going to make a decision and you're going to say, this is true. And I choose to follow that. There's some here this morning who has an ear to hear what the Spirit has to say, right? And you're hearing a voice louder and different than mine. Maybe even not on the same subject, but he's speaking. And so Jesus with these disciples, he's training them as he goes and in preparation for this situation. How many of you guys know that Jesus knows all things? Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus knew what was going to happen. Didn't he know what was going to happen? Jesus so knew what was going to happen. In verse 1, he knew what was going to happen in verse 11. He knew with the 12, he knew with the crowd, he knew where they were going, he knew they were going to go through Samaria and Galilee. He knew there was going to be 10 guys who were very sick without a cure if he didn't show up. He knew he was going to heal all 10 of them in a very peculiar way. I can't wait to talk about that in just a few minutes. And he was going to, he was going to heal them and one was going to come back to him and give God glory. He knew all of this. The backside teaching of the obvious passage is that Jesus is preparing. He's preparing Peter because Peter's going to preach on the day of Pentecost. He's preparing Matthew and John and James, and even old Thomas, who might be like the rest of us, a little slow, right? Who's going to say, I don't believe it till I see it. And he's preparing them. How does he prepare them? If you look at the first couple of verses of chapter 17, Jesus says to his disciples, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. Not offenses, like Alabama did yesterday, showing out scoring 42 points. But something that is offensive, which you just got when I said something about Alabama from the stage again. Don't worry, the season will end and we'll be champions again and then I'll stop talking about it for a season. Okay. So, offenses, something that, that riles up an emotion inside of you and it goes negative and south really quick to where your feelings get hurt. Nobody here ever has their feelings on their shoulders and nobody here ever gets hurt because of something that was said though, right? Something that was <laughs> Yeah. Offenses, Jesus says, impossible. But woe unto him by whom they come. Now he's going to talk in verse 2 at the end of that verse about offending one of these little ones. And he said, it's better that a millstone, tons of weight and, and block, be tied to your neck and cast into the depths of the ocean and you drown to death that you offend one of these little ones. It is a warning to make sure that we do not offend children. Let me just say this real quick. 
we welcome children at Embrace Church. We want them here. If they're coloring on the walls, we got paint. Don't worry about it. If they scratch the floors, it's okay. We can fix that. But what we, it's harder to fix a 42-year-old broken man who's so skeptical about Christianity because when they were seven, they were mistreated at church. It's easier to fix the floor than it is that man. And so, so we love children, we welcome children, we want children, we don't want to be a part of what Jesus, we don't want to offend one of these little ones, but Jesus is speaking more than just offending a child. He's just talking about, it's, it's impossible that offenses won't come. Offenses are going to come. How many of you guys offended somebody on accident today? Some hands went down, some stayed up. It was a trick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's so easy to offend intentionally, unintentionally. Let, let, me, let me just go ahead and jump a little bit into our main passage and say there were 10 men whose lives were offensive to a culture who did not want their disease. <laughs> if you know anything about leprosy, which I thank God we don't know much about leprosy in our culture, in Calcutta, India, there's, there's outbreaks of leprosy even today. There, there's, there's a part of a hospital in New Orleans that has a clinic that can minister to people who have leprosy. But leprosy is a bacteria, a disease that eats your flesh away. These people in this day didn't have hand sanitizer. You know? They didn't have local hospitals like we do. And they would bandage themselves up. The, the first thing they would do is they would go to the priest and they would show them this white dot on their skin and the priest would examine it and quarantine him and come back and they would look again. And if it spread, then it's more than likely leprosy. And they were told to go off and colonize with other lepers. Basically saying there's nothing we can do. Go be a part of your kind until you die. Because what's going to wind up being so offensive to the culture around you is not going to be as offensive to the culture you have to be a part of. They would wrap themselves up in bandages. The odor would be atrocious of rotting and dying flesh. If there was flesh that was exposed, forgive me if I'm getting too, too in-depth with this, flies would come in and lay eggs, and they couldn't feel that. And rats at night, because of the stench, would come in. Am I going too far? Is this offensive to your senses? Right? To your stomach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Making me puke. So, but th this, is, this is that disease. Sometimes we, we get offended on purpose. Sometimes our offense is unintentional. I would dare say none of those 10 men woke up one morning and said, you know what, I think I'm gonna go get leprosy. I'm sick and tired of living life the way I am, all clean and hanging out with my family and eating good food and not being homeless. I think I'm just gonna, no. It was an indirect offense to them, but they knew that it could be a direct offense from them if they got outside of their group, their quarantine. <laughs> Jesus is preparing the hearts of the disciples by talking about offense, and he's saying, hey guys, do what, what you can as best as you can not to offend. But then the next thing he talks about is, is faith and forgiveness, and I'm going to just lump those two there together. He, he talks about how 
How faith has got to be what leads us further. He says, you know, there, there is a faith that is able to say unto the sycamine tree, get plucked up from the roots and cast into the sea, and it will be done a mustard seed size kind of faith. And you're going to need that to be able to get over your offenses. <laughs> How many of you have ever been offended? Oh, man, Yeah. How hard, how easy is it to get over the offense? Well, that's kind of on a scale, I think, a lot of times. It depends on who you wish to forgive. Because if we're all honest in here, we have some people that we have pre-prescribed, we have pre-decided not to forgive them anymore. They've done their last. Jesus says, it's impossible that offenses will come. Make sure that you have faith because it's going to be the channel of faith that God gives you that leads you into a place of forgiveness in a place that you don't want to be because it's going to be hard for you to be there. And so how does he teach to forgive? If somebody comes to you and offends you seven times in a day, tell them, mm, you done met your quota. Don't come back until tomorrow. I'm going to punch you in the face. No, it's not the way it goes, right? Let, let, me, let me just give you this encouragement. And, I, and the people of Embrace Church to whom I have the pleasure to pastor, I'm giving you this permission. You can only forgive as much as Jesus forgives. Where Jesus' forgiveness stops, you're welcome to stop. Amen. <laughs> And so Jesus is teaching them. I mean, you think about the forgiveness that God has given you through his son Jesus has been infinite. And yet you didn't die on a cross for nobody. Can your offense be so great to where you let the enemy use the offense to be a stronger tool than the tool God gives you, which is by faith forgiveness to overwhelm the offense? And then he goes on. <laughs> We're getting there, y'all. Hang on. Verses 7 through 10, he continues this story pattern. And he says, but which one of you guys have a servant who's in the field and he's feeding the cows? And you call in the servant. You say, come on in. It's time to get something to eat. And you're not the one cooking because he's your servant and you're the master. And you tell him, sit down here. Let me feed you first. Jesus said, that's not the way it's done. Instead, the way it's done is that the servant comes in, you call him in, and you're waiting. He's the servant, you're the master, and you say, wash up and prepare the meal. I'm hungry, you feed me. And then after I'm fed, then you can be fed. And then Jesus says, doing everything we're told to do, we're still yet an unprofitable servant. Let me say this real quick. When we are offended or when we offend, when we are the offender, we pray that they have forgiveness. When we are offending, uh, offended, we pray in ourselves that God would give us forgiveness for them, right? It's, it's, the, it's the way it's gotta go. But what we don't do is just do what's simply required of us in the moment of offense in the moment of being upset, in the moment of a bad attitude, in the moment of an upside-down mood, we don't do just what's been required of us. I know I'm preaching to embrace. Man, y'all the cream of the crop, right? Y'all over the top, you go well beyond. <laughs> That's who we are. That's what we do. And so I know that I'm not talking to y'all. I'm just talking to the ones that ain't here today. So y'all carry this message to them, okay? 
That we're not the kind of people who just does what Jesus told us to do and we stop right there. For a, for a boss to an employee, the employee that only does what they're supposed to do and doesn't do extra above and beyond, then the boss looks at that person like, where's the help, right? Where's the help? I want you guys to be employees who go above and beyond, who go the second mile, who, who, who carries the burden a little bit further, who does the extra work without being asked. I want you guys to be that kind of employee. I, I want the employers to encourage that and model that to their employees. But you know what I want more than anything is for the Christians to live that way with their neighbors and their family and their, of, their offenders. You say, okay, Andy, how does, that, how does that get us here now to the 10 lepers? So Jesus is talking about offense. It's gonna happen. It's direct and indirect, and you've got to handle it by faith. You can't handle it by emotions because emotions are gonna take you to bitterness and anger and, and, and revenge, but, but faith is gonna take you to forgiveness because God has forgiven you, and you're to overwhelm that person because you wanna be a profitable servant with forgiveness. And then they go through Samaria and Galilee. <laughs> they, they go through Samaria in particular, and you guys know this. And, and the reason I think that's more pointed out is, is because this is a Samaritan person who is, was healed along with the other nine, but yet this is the only one that came back. A Samaritan, as Philip said a couple of Sundays ago, was someone who was the result of Ezra and Nehemiah days. It's when that populace of people began. Ezra and Nehemiah was the ingredients of God used to restore the temple of God and the walls around Jerusalem to bring the remnant back out of Babylonian captivity into Jerusalem so that they could celebrate and worship God. They had to have a temple and they had to have certain elements to worship God in that day. And so God used them to restore all of that. But while they were in captivity in Babylon, they married strange wives is what the scripture says. In other words, non-Jewish wives. And when they married these non-Jewish wives, the product of the non-Jewish wife was a Jewish husband, a Gentile woman who had a Samaritan child. Samaria is a geographical location now, but that's the roots of when it all happened. And, and the Jews looked at them a little bit different, as though they're not full heirs of Judaism. As though they didn't belong now, let me just put it this way. The Samaritans are the cousins you ain't inviting to Thanksgiving. Some of y'all didn't want to laugh because they might be here this morning. And so so they, they've already got this stigmatism about them. And, and, and Jesus points it out. And, and so the, there's some things that we can see this, from this very familiar story about this Samaritan leper who was healed. First, he shows us how to be thankful when the odds are stacked against him. He was a Samaritan, but Jesus chose to go his direction. He was not supposed to receive favor from God, and yet he received favor from God, and he responded with gratitude because the principle still stays the same even after Luke chapter 7 where Jesus says, to whom much is forgiven... They love much. 
You say, okay, Andy, I didn't do some of the things some other people did, so they must have been forgiven more than I was forgiven. No, no, no. You have been a wicked, pathetic, wretched sinner. And you said, Andy, I got saved when I was seven. You are a wretched, pathetic, wicked sinner. You were born in your sin and out of the nature of your physical birth into this world, being a sinner, you chose to sin. And even as an infant, you would take toys from the next kid. Didn't belong to you. You cried and set off the alarm that was a lie to your parents thinking you were hurt or hungry or needed a change and you didn't. Man, that's a fact, ain't it? If you ever raise kids, you know two-year-olds are the most wicked beings on the, on the planet, right? They will bite and lie about it. It's just who they are. They need to be redeemed. It's a, so it's, it's a fact. So sin has affected us all. It's not how much dirt you've done and were forgiven of, but it's the perspective of what it took to forgive and save you from who you were. So it applies here. You see, he, he, he shows how to be thankful when the odds are stacked against, are the odds stacked against you? You can still prove that a, there's a heart of gratitude in you. He's reminded of how needs move you to a crowded voice. You, you look and it says that uh, in verse 15, and one of them when he saw he was, oh, no, let's go back up some, let me see. <clears throat> verse 12, when he entered into a certain village, there he met 10 men who were leper, which stood afar off, and they lifted up their voices. This is one of the truths that I think we pull away from this story. Sometimes we fall into ingratitude because we think we're the only ones that's experiencing the trauma that we've got. We forget there's other voices calling out to Jesus as well. It doesn't mean that we have to be in, in ungrateful for that, but we can, we can still be grateful knowing that God, if he did it for them, he can do it for me. If he did it for me, he can do it for them. He can do it for us because there is that much power and even more so in the presence of Jesus. He learns how gratitude gives you a choice to do something new in verse 14. And when he saw them, he said unto them, go show yourselves unto the priest. Let me just say, this is the, the thought that I wanted to get to earlier a person who had leprosy was declared diseased by the high priest. And they were sent off to collect themselves with other leopards, diseased people, where they would stay until they died or something else happened, which very rarely any other time something happened unless God divinely intervened like he did with Naaman and told him to go dip himself in the Jordan River seven times in the Old Testament by the prophet Elijah. Jesus shows up here and and something unique has happened, right? And so, so these lepers, they cry out together in one voice. They all have this specific need. And Jesus heals them by saying, go to the priest. Now, they're diseased. I don't want to get back into it. They stunk. They didn't have all their digits. <laughs> there were still open wounds to where flies had infected them. And so much the more. Some without a nose and some without an ear. Some without a leg and some without an arm. It just rotted off. And Jesus says, in that state, 
Let me say this. Don't think you've got to get cleaned up to come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus. Okay? And, and, and Jesus sends, says, go and, and show yourself to the priest. And they start going. I can't, it blows my mind to think that it's probably a dude walking and he scratches his head. And he's like, what's an ear there? That rat took my ear about two and a half months ago. And it's back. I got a nose. I, I got an arm. I'm, I'm healed. And out of their excitement, they run to the priest because they want to go, I'm sure, back to their families and declare their wholeness again. They had to go to the priest to be checked off of. Say, okay, you're good. Who were the priests of that day? They were the ones who united their voice against the high priest. You see, this is what we can do sometimes with our gratitude after our healing is we can run to the wrong place to give gratitude to. In our excitement, we can do so many things that may not be bad. They may be good, but they're not best. And so this guy chooses to do the best thing. He recognized who the real high priest was, the one who healed him, not the one who kept him away, the one who brought him in, not the one who turned him away. And so he says, I want you to go and, and, and show this. And, and then he says, by your faith, you have been healed. He did something new now. And he was changed by more than the obvious. You see, this is a fact. Gratitude grows us. Turn to your neighbor and say, gratitude grows us. How can we real quickly internalize this story and learn how thankfulness affects me. Because this is the deal. Just as contagious as leprosy was, an attitude of gratitude can be. But it's got to affect you first. And when gratitude affects you, then what might happen is if you continue in that state of gratitude, maybe an ungrateful spouse might have an attitude change. Maybe a rebellious teenager that won't make their bed or get the peanut butter sandwich out from under it. They might have an attitude change. Right? Maybe that boss, maybe that coworker, maybe that best friend. If your attitude is changed, it can become contagious because gratitude grows us and so it can affect others just as it affects us. Three real quick thoughts. Number one, are you looking for opportunities of gratitude or are you surprised by them? You see, these guys, they had to be on guard at all time. They're lepers. They're isolated. They need to make sure that some kid didn't run up to them looking for something or somebody. They had to say, anytime you got within a certain perimeter, unclean, unclean, they were looking. And obviously by some chance they heard of Jesus and they heard of what Jesus could do and they knew that blind Bartimaeus was healed and they knew that, that Lazarus was raised from the dead and they, they knew that Jairus' daughter was now whole and complete and this Jesus has come close enough within voice shout and they holler out, have mercy on us. Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Because they were aware, they were looking, they were looking. The reason that your heart is full of ingratitude is because you're not looking for a way to be grateful. 
And I'm not saying the, 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 the glass is half empty, the glass is half full garbage. I'm not talking about psychoanalyzing things. I'm talking about a heart that has been radically changed by the blood of Jesus. And you can't help but to say, it is well with my soul. <laughs> it might be hell in front of my face, but it is well within my soul. I'm going to be thankful and I'm going to be grateful because I'm looking for it. Something bad happens and it doesn't affect you that way. Because the attitude is, thank God, it could have been worse, right? Matthew Henry, a Bible commentator in the 1500s, was taking his, he called it a purse back in that day. He had his wallet with him, and he had all of his money in there because that was the only safe place to have it, and, uh, and it turned out not to be so safe. And he was walking down the road one day, and somebody robbed him and took all of his money, and that was his money to live on and, and sustain himself and his family. And he goes back home, and he's weeping, and he's broken, and he's physically beaten, and he doesn't have his money, and he begins to write in his journal, and he says, this. He said, God, I thank you. And after a long list of grateful things, he says, God, I thank you most of all that I was the one who was stole from and not the one who was stealing. <laughs> what? That's what I'm talking about when I say looking. Are you looking for opportunities of gratitude? Or are you just surprised by, you don't have to be surprised, be actively looking. Number two, timing is critical. I've already gone over nine minutes talking about timing. <laughs> timing is critical. It, it's, it's critical. Now, for this guy, he, he's, he's broken, he's hurt, he cries out to Jesus. He's living this thing out that we get to learn from. Now, let's make sure we understand that part of it. We've got the full conclusion of God's revelation in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, okay? He's living this thing out. He's healed and then he comes back to Jesus and he falls on his face and with a loud voice, they, they are, he is worshiping Jesus and Jesus says, are you the only one that's come back to be thankful? He responded after his healing. Let me, let me share this with you. Why don't we respond before our healing? Why don't we go ahead and bless before our blessing? And I'm not saying use that to try to manipulate God to get something extra from him. Greg stood on the stage earlier and said, God's been good enough to us already. Do you have enough gratitude just to cover for the rest of eternity what he's already done for you? We can pre-plan, pre-determine. You can wake up every single morning saying, I defeat ingratitude. I have a heart of gratitude. And I'm going to live in a manner that shows everybody I'm thankful for Jesus. I'm going to be that nut who's grinning from ear to ear no matter what happens in life. But then the last thing is, can ingratitude remain while in true worship? Can ingratitude remain if we're in an act of worship? What are y'all at right now? Don't. Church, you, you, we are the church, but we are in an act of worship. You have prayed. You have sung praises. You have responded with open heart. 
We are opening the word of God and we are understanding by his spirit the truth that is eternal, settled in heaven. We are making decisions right now about who God is and who we are and what we need to do next. We are, we are worshiping. We are worshiping, worshiping. You know this, worship can only be defined as God is defined and God cannot be defined, so therefore worship is so much more than what our brain can fathom. We will spend eternity in worship of him and it will never grow dull and the repeated song won't be a bother (laughs) And, and our praises and our prayers will never be hindered We'll be living in a state of gratitude. Ingratitude will hinder your worship. Say, Andy, I just, you don't know where I've been. I don't have to know where you've been. I mean, I'll listen to where you've been. And I'll do my best to pay as much attention as I can. It's just a joke, y'all. It doesn't matter where you've been. I know where he's been. And he's been everywhere you've been times 10. There's never where you can go to where he hasn't already been. He's the high priest touched with the feelings of our infirmities, and yet he's tempted in all points and without sin. <laughs> he's got you. He's got you. And you say, Andy, it's just life is not good. Life is terrible right now. I've got a bad attitude. I'm trying to change my bad attitude. I wake up every morning with a bad mood. Maybe the conclusion of this chapter will help you. I don't have time to read verses 20 to 32, I think it is. But the rest of the chapter, you know what that talks about? I don't think this is coincidence. I think that God has divinely orchestrated the word of God for us in this order to to our help and for our learning. The the last part is about the return of Jesus. Say, Andy, life is terrible. Okay, Jesus is coming. (laughs) Andy, I ain't got enough money to pay my power bill. You better pray Jesus comes before Southern Pine does. (laughs) Jesus is coming though, right? He's on his way. He's coming. And everything that we heard over and complain about and deal with, all of these former things are going to pass away. All your headaches, they'll be resolved. So why not in a pre-planned decision go ahead and say, God, I'm going to go ahead and count my blessings. I'm going to name them one by one. Because there are a million little miracles that you perform. And so I'm just going to worship you in a heart of gratitude. And I'm not going to let ingratitude keep me from worshiping you. And so since worship means sacrifice, today some of us might have to sacrifice something to get to the place of worship. To get a heart of gratitude. So you might have to sacrifice something like that bad business deal that hurt your feelings and you didn't get paid what you were supposed to get paid or you were mistreated in some kind of way. Or your neighbor put his fence 10 inches on the side of your property line. That's what we used to say in the old school preaching. They offended me. My, my spouse, they just won't get on the same page with me. Maybe there's some sacrificing that has to be done this morning. 
if you're going to experience worship. Maybe it's making less of yourself so that you can make more of him, and whenever you make more of him, you'll see that it becomes right with him. The Proverbs says that when we're right with God, God makes our enemies our friends. What? Why not? He can. He wants to. There's two quotes that I'm going to end with this morning, and you can go ahead and stand up. That's how quick it's going to be. Praise team, you go ahead and make your way on up. Both of these quotes come from Mike Tyson. We're going to end it spiritual, okay? Mike Tyson said everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth, right? So we need to make sure we have a plan now that's going to persevere through the punched in the mouth. That's number one. But the second thing he said whenever somebody asked him in an interview, said, do you get upset or offended when somebody speaks wrongly or bad of you. And he said, I only get upset when I think I am somebody. <laughs> I only get upset about it when I think I'm, but when I think I'm nobody, it don't bother me none. Right? Maybe we just need to come this morning and lay on the altar, us, and say, God, I've been prideful. It's, it's hindering my worship, and, and pride has led me to ingratitude, and I've been grumbly, and I haven't had a heart of gratitude, thankfulness for what you've done. And so I just want to come and offer it to you. I think we can do that this morning.